Today, the world is demanding more of products and packaging. Consumers want more variety. Governments are demanding sustainability. And supply chains, they're more complex than ever before. Simply put, companies that make things need to respond faster than ever to change. Welcome to Beyond the Shelf, the product and packaging podcast. I'm Laura Fodi, and I'll be your host. Since I was a kid, I've always been fascinated by how things are made. And at Specrite, I get to work with product and packaging leaders to help them spend less time chasing data and more time making amazing things. We'll interview experts and industry leaders across food and beverage, beauty, consumer goods, and industrials and manufacturing. We're going to go beyond the shelf and get a behind the scenes look into the things you use every day and even the ones you don't. Where do the best ideas come from? How are leaders making sustainability goals a reality? What trends are here to stay? And what's just a passing fad? We're going to ask our guests all this and more. So be sure to subscribe and get ready to go Beyond the Shelf. Hello, and welcome to Beyond the Shelf, the product and packaging podcast where we interview the people behind the amazing products we use every day. I'm Laura Fodi, and today I'm really excited to be speaking with Carter Cast. Um, he is the Michael S. and Mary Sue Shannon Clinical Professor of Entrepreneurship at Northwestern's Kellogg School of Management. He is also an operating partner at Pritzker Group Venture Capital and a senior advisor at Pritzker Group Private Capital. He was formerly the CEO of Walmart.com and prior to that, the founding chief marketing officer of Blue Nile Inc., the leading seller of diamonds and jewelry on the internet. Who doesn't love that, right? Before that, Carter was the director of marketing at Frito-Lay, where he and his team developed Tostitos Scoops and launched the Salsa and Dip product line, which I'm sure many of us have enjoyed during uh, Super Bowl Sunday. Carter teaches entrepreneurship, uh, leadership courses at Kellogg, and has received both the Sidney Levy Award and Impact Teaching Award multiple times. He is also the author of a book, The Right and Wrong Stuff, How Brilliant Careers Are Made and Unmade, which was released in 2018. Forbes named it one of the six best self-help books to keep you motivated until 2020 and beyond. Uh, I've also read it and can't say enough great things about it. Carter sits on five boards and has a bachelor degree from Stanford University and received his MBA from Northwestern's Kellogg School of Management. Uh, he's also someone that I admire a great deal, and I think you're all going to enjoy the conversation today. So, Carter, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Laura, for those kind words. So, I'm, you know, I'm excited to have a fellow marketing leader on. We talked to a lot of people on the product and packaging side. Can you talk about how your background as a marketer and really your role in driving product innovation at some of the companies you worked at? You know, Laura, I went into companies that um, I tried to do this intentionally where marketing had a seat at the table. So I used to call it big M marketing. So big M marketing, marketing equals strategy and marketing equals product. Um, versus marketing equals um, Marcom only, marketing communications. So where I started with PepsiCo, I was there 11 years. It, marketing was one of the key functions to drive uh, revenue and drive innovation. So marketing had attached to it um, product development. So that made it really a fun job, and I stayed there a long time. Uh, then I went into um, um, earlier stage companies. I went to Electronic Arts, which at that time was about a $600 million business in revenue. You know, now its valuation is over $30 billion. But back then it was 
just taking off in the later part of the 90s. And marketing was did not have a seat at the table back then. It was more Marcom. So I got in there and I tried to establish marketing as an important function to learn about customer behavior and learn about consumer trends. And so we could develop uh, software products that are more tuned into what people were looking for. So that was an interesting job because it was, I think, a shift um, several of us came in with this attitude of we have to be more consumer centric. And, um, you know, I think it, I think it paid I think it paid off. Then I went to several startups after that and had a blast. We, we I went to one startup where we sold diamonds over the Internet, which was Blue Nile. And I can tell you about that later. But that was an innovation because there was nobody selling, you know, diamonds directly over the Internet in the 90s. So we, we had a good time with that. And then after that, I went and helped launch Walmart.com's business. So Walmart was very successful at that point, but they hadn't had a lot, a lot of luck getting into the Internet. So a group of us in San Francisco dev, started developing sort of Internet and e-commerce capabilities and and. and and launching that within the world's biggest company was really an interesting initiative, interesting in good ways and interesting in very difficult ways. So then I left about 10 years ago and moved to Chicago and became a, a professor of entrepreneurship at Northwestern's Kellogg School and also a, a joined a venture capital firm where I'm an operating partner. And that's how I got to know you, Laura, is, is we invested in this fabulous company called Specrite. Uh, which is, uh, you know, talk about an innovation, it's changing the way companies think about understanding product from a specification standpoint. And there's so much that can be done by understanding all of the intricacies of product and item and costs and uh, utility. So uh, couldn't be more excited to be here with you. I remember one of our early conversations, Carter, and you said, I wish I had this when I was at PepsiCo. Oh, uh, gosh. It life so much easier. <laughs> yeah, as we're developing products at PepsiCo back then, you know, if you were talking to vendors, suppliers, upstream and downstream, not having the common language to talk with them about um, packaging needs and costs and item specifications, it just slowed things down. If we would have had Specrite, then we could have innovated, I think, much more quickly. Yeah. Uh, so... I'm a huge fan of Tostito Scoops, I, and I love Pepsi products in general. Can you walk us through some of your favorite stories of you driving innovation? And it could be product, could be packaging, but would love to to hear some of what you did there. Well, we'll talk about yeah. Well, we'll talk about Tostitos. The um, one of my favorite stories from Tostitos is a packaging innovation story. So when I joined the the business, we were um, it was a fledgling brand around 1991, 1992, and we did not have a Tostitos salsa and dip line. It was just we had some generic um, salsa that did about seventy million dollars in business, maybe sixty. And so I reform. I worked with a R and D team, and we reformulated the 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 food and the salsa, and then branded it Tostitos, and we made it, Laura, in a wide mouth jar. And most packages were, you know, the, the glass was tall and narrow, like Pace Picante. We made it in a wide mouth jar so you could dip the chip right into the salsa. And then we co-merchandised them together in gravity-fed trays. So when you pulled the jar, the tray came down, the, the, ne the next product in line came down. 
So this packaging innovation sounds simple, and a lot of people thought we shouldn't do it because the extra size of the wide mouth, wide mouth jar made the packaging cost go up because the metal, you know, the, the 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 lid. But we knew that if we could promote eating chips and dips together, we could increase our ticket average and make it easier for customers. So we launched this large, wide mouth jar, and it did and it did very well. And we also then did a lot of line extensions after that. We did Tostitos Salsa Con Queso. So we did a cheese tip and we used a special technique. We retorted the dip, which means we filled it. But instead of hot filling it to kill the microorganisms, which then and, and also a lot of companies use vinegar, which gives it a, a kind of a strange aftertaste like on a bean dip. We we did this retorting where we would put the product in these big vats and flush the vat with hot water and you circulate the product in like in a circular motion and it slowly heats up while the water is flushing around the sides of it. What that does is you slowly heat it so you don't take a lot of the by you don't heat it up so hot that you ruin a lot of the nutritional value of it. And you don't have to use um, vinegar. And so as a result of it, it had a really smooth taste profile. And so the salsa, the, the excuse me, the cheese and the bean dip we did for Tostitos was very, very popular as a result of that sort of packaging innovation and then the product innovation. I mean, Carter, you're taking me back to my childhood. I'm like, as you're talking about that, I'm remembering opening the, the jar of Tostita salsa and, di- and yeah, every <laughs> kid did that. Like, yeah. and your mother would be like, can you wait until we put it in a serving bowl? And you're like, that's no. that authentic, like, we all want to like d- eat that first chip, right? What I love about that story, though, is you talked about how it increased the cost of the packaging. Yes. How did you as an organization, you know, justify that? Because oftentimes, it's really easy to say, like, you know what, we want to keep the cost at a certain price point, but you kind of had that gut feeling that it was going to be successful. How did you navigate? Yeah, that? we did two things. Not only did we increase the, the size of the jar and that increased the packaging, we also had like an eight color lid. We had this intricate lid that was showing the quality of the product Tostitos and it's sort of a resort Mexico look. So we had this intricate lid. And the first thing when I joined the business and I presented this, people said, oh, no, the lid's going to be too expensive size and color. And so we went into we you have to test this. So we went into a test market. We created a test market and we did an A-B test on one side. We created we had a lid that didn't, you know, didn't have all the colors. And we also had a lid that was smaller. And we showed that by co-merchandising these together, with this larger jar lid, we actually promoted the purchasing, the bundled purchasing of the products together, and the transaction average was large enough to more than pay off the cost. I love that. So, so you, this, had you, know, that. It, you had yeah. to do this in a test because it would be hard to push that through senior management without hard proof. A hundred percent. But I do love that it's that gut instinct that you're then able to test, right? That still right. takes a lot of courage. Um, because no one likes no one likes failing. Um, you mentioned Blue Nile. So nowadays, I feel like most people are buying engagement rings on the internet or designing them. But back then, I don't want to say back then, but it was, it was back then. I mean, it was <laughs> it was ninety nine. What was that like? I imagine a huge shift in most consumer behavior. Can you talk about you know how that company became successful? Because I imagine you had to overcome a lot of barriers on consumer comfortability. 
Absolutely. So the insight by Mark, the 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 founder, Mark Vedan, was he said, when I bought my diamond engagement ring, I felt like a fool going into a retailer, you know, being being talked down to. They give you three options or four options, so you don't have assortment choice. And so when he left without purchasing, he thought there's got to be a better way. So he went on the internet to explore. And he found a website by a guy named Doug Williams, who was actually selling diamonds over the Internet in a consultative way. So people would call Doug. He'd get them on the Internet and he'd show them the, the diamond so he could walk, kind of walk them through the purchase. The website looked like Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. It was like, you know, multicolored, the, you know, very ugly website. But Mark asked Doug, hey, are you selling a lot of diamonds this way? And Doug said, I'm selling so many like this that I might close down my store. And with that, Mark went and raised a seed round of capital, bought Doug's business, and with it, bought Doug. So Doug would stay on the company as a diamond buyer. And then I was hired. And so my job was to, well, number one, verify that, in fact, this was a way people would buy and then build a brand. So the brand when I started was called Internet Diamonds. And I said, I said, Mark, it needs to be more evocative than that. We have to rename it. But secondly, we had to prove that men would shop this way. So again, we tested. We found that 92% of diamond engagement rings were bought by the man. So why is everybody communicating only to women? Didn't make sense. So we had to name it a name that was neutral. Blue Nile is a neutral name. You know, we didn't call it Ribbon or Aspire. You know, we tried to call it a name that was that was more sort of re reasonable for both genders. And then the next thing we had to do was we had to actually test it and see if they would buy men would buy over the Internet. What we found was with the phone call, if you can consult them, once you get them on the phone, your conversion rate goes up 10 times literally from 2% to 20%, getting them on the phone to be able to talk to them and talk to them about this is a better way to buy. You don't have the inventory carrying costs so we can keep the prices low. We will have a GIA certification. We will mail with you. And here's the thing we did. We gave men 30 days to go get the ring um, appraised before we charged their credit card. So we made it risk-free. We said, we're not going to charge you you get the stone, go get it appraised. We guarantee you the appraised value will be at least 25% higher than what you've paid from us. And so it's risk-free. If you don't like it, send it back. We won't have charged you. So making a scanning and placing the GIA, you know, Gemological Institute of America, putting those certifications next to each stone, we would not put a stone up that didn't have a certification next to it. And then giving people time to go get it appraised so they saw that this was real and then sending it insured, mailing it insured on us. So all these things actually made the thing take off right from the beginning. Our job was to reduce the perceived risk. We were basically in the risk reduction business. That's what I love about this story, Carter, is on the surface, you wouldn't think any of this has to do with product innovation but it really does at its core. It actually has a lot to do with packaging innovation too, because it's all about how do you get that diamond to the end consumer. And to your point, 
the challenge that you're solving isn't about is this diamond the most customizable or the most specific it's about is it the most convenient and the most risk free and is it reducing that anxiety that the consumer and the founder had of like am i getting ripped off that's ex- exactly right and we're also got educating and guiding so we're teaching them the four c's you know color cut clarity and carrot we're teaching them that because we have great content on the internet then we're guiding them so when they we 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 advertise to call us when they would call us we would say hey would you like to talk to a gemologist about this particular stone we'd have gemologists standing by to talk and we made enough per transaction the average stone at that time was $6200 so we had enough margin to play with to be able to have a consultative purchase i love that and that, that was the genesis but you're right it was an innovation sort of end to end you know, it was we we approached it. We bought from De Beers site holders and drop shipped it and sent it directly to the homes. So the product didn't go down the distribution chain and gathering dust at a retail outlet. The minute we sold it, we pulled it from the distributor and they sent it. So it was a more efficient supply chain um, than selling it the old fashioned way. And, you know, last I checked, they were doing you know three quarters of a billion dollars in sales. Wow. I'm curious, uh, not a topic for this podcast. I'm curious if uh, the percentage of men versus women buying has changed a little bit. That's something, that it I'd, has. that's something that I'd be interested in learning more about. One thing that we did, Laura, is we established ourselves in being a place where men can buy engagement rings, but we made sure we always um, were good at speaking to women because we knew that we would get self-purchased women coming back. You know, where did you get this stone? Oh, they'd be interested in come on the website and look at us. So it wasn't long after, maybe a year later, that we launched sterling, gold, pearls, lower price point jewelry that women would buy, you know, and also men would buy as anniversary presents. That's very interesting. It's more of like the cross-sell then of like mm-hmm. the woman getting the engagement ring and then wanting to go back to get like the matching Anniversary band, again, another type of innovation, right? Extending that product line, even though it was outside of maybe your core business at the time. And that's why we, you know, you want to start with your aspirational product because that gave us the halo to do jewelry. If we would have started with sterling silver and then tried to sell diamonds, I don't know if that would have worked in reverse. But starting with the signature item, a diamond, gave us sort of this halo effect to then do pearls and do gold and do sterling. Um, so we we went right for the sort of sweet spot, the diamond engagement ring, and then extended from there. It, it reminds me of how Tesla started really with the sports coupe and went beyond. I think oh, that's there's a great example. There's something to that strategy that I think we can forget. It's like go with the big. The, the hardest thing, the biggest ticket, right? Because you're going to make more of an impact. Um, you know, we talk a lot about innovation. I think the other side of the coin of innovation is failure, oftentimes. <laughs> yeah. Fortunately or fortunately, and sometimes I think we learn more from that. Um, did you encounter any of this during your career and would love to hear some examples? Oh, yeah, I sure did. And, I, you know, I think, th- th- not to sound cliche-ridden, but if you aren't failing, you're probably not trying enough. Your goal is quality at bats. I think your goal is to make sure that you have a, a good hypothesis that you're working under around innovation. What's your hypothesis? Are you testing it effectively? 
And if you launch these in test markets and they fail, but you have a good sound hypothesis and you executed the test well, well, good for you. Keep keep swinging at the plate. So I, you know, I I never I never felt bad about the failures if we tested intelligently. One of them that I did feel bad about was we launched this black bean dip that was effort under Tostitos that was absolutely delicious. Because we retorted it, it had this very smooth taste profile. And in tests against Guiltless Gourmet, our reference competitor, we we clobbered them. So the um the sales force was so excited about the product, they did two things. One, they overordered and they sort of ignored I was the marketing person, they ignored my forecast of how many cases they should order. And secondly, I was very um, very, very cautious about launching it in um, DMAs and in, in markets that were um, had a orientation towards Mexican food. So we're going to launch it in Houston, in San Antonio. We're going to launch it in markets in Los Angeles. We weren't going to march, market it, you know, launch it in Toledo. We weren't going to mar- you know, market it in certain markets where at that time, there wasn't a high purchase indice on Hispanic food, on Mexican food. So the field got so excited, they ordered it in markets that I, I recommended we stay away from. As a result of over-ordering and launching it in markets that it didn't fit, we had a lot of stales. The product was staling in the shelf because it didn't, there was no frame of reference for it in Toledo. What is this black bean dip stuff that looks, you know, looks like poo in on the shelf in a piece of glass and and it and it staled and it it tanked the entire thing. I think it was my failure, Laura, in that if I at that time of my career, if I would have developed stronger ties to the sales force and the area vice presidents, I could have counseled them and we could have launched this thing in a more measured way and slowly expanded it instead of expanding it, instead of launching it with this big bang. And that was a huge lesson for me on sales and marketing. And I know you do this well personally. I've talked to you about it. Making sure there's a very close relationship between sales and marketing and that you're, you know, you're, you're peas in a pod. You work in consort together. If I would have had a stronger relationship with the sales folks at that time, I think we could have done this launch successfully. And that was a lesson for me from then on out. I spent a lot of my time in the field with the salespeople from then on out. It was like a lot, it was a, a lesson from pain, a painful experience. Hey, Carter, I remember when I first met you years ago and I asked you about, you know, what should the relationship be like between marketing and sales? And you said, they should be the mom and dad of revenue. And I thought that's like the best analogy. I'm like, I guess that makes me the mom. But um, this idea that you're growing this thing together and it takes both of you. And you think about kids who go to each parent for something different, like you just have to be on the same page to make that successful. What I love most about that story, though, and it's something that definitely resonates with me is it was almost a failure because it was so successful at the start. Yeah. And how failure can sometimes come from too much success if it's not yeah. like on the surface, you're like, wow, it's this is going well, like, everyone wants to sell it. It's in different markets. But, you know, I think about the what is it the five P's of marketing. And when we think about placement, it's not just the shelf, but the market. And oh, what a, that's great a great lesson. Comment. 
It's a great, a great comment. lesson that we still probably need to think about today. You know, there's um, the, the, we have, as you know, there's you have a lot of good information from Nielsen, et cetera, on CDIs and BDIs, which CDI is Category Development Index. So how much consumption per capita is in Toledo versus San Antonio? And if you look at the CDI, the Category Development Index, you know, Toledo for black bean dip was probably a 55 for bean dip. And San Antonio is probably 280. The seat, you know, so it's an index. And so if you look at those CDIs, you can figure out which markets to launch in. And, and you know, if I could have, if I had a stronger relationship at that time with the salespeople, I probably could have influenced them to to wait and learn and not launch in some of those underdeveloped markets. Yeah. What a great shout out, though, um, for product and packaging people, though, of working with marketers to get some of this data. I mean, wow, if I'm a product person, I hope I'm getting access to the things that my marketing team does, right? Because you're really on the forefront of what are people, what do people want? What are people trying? And there's just so many data points out there today. You know, um, I was in new product development at PepsiCo when it was separate from marketing. It was part of marketing, but it was a separate group. So we were way upstream working on innovation. Then I would align with the brand marketing folks on how to launch it and where to launch it. So, you know, even there, there's, and then there was actually a customer marketing group that worked with the accounts like Vons and Ralph's and Safeway. And, you know, and so there were three different groups of marketers, way upstream product development, brand marketing in the middle and customer marketing, which is like account management. All three of them are absolutely essential to work together. Yeah. Um, Speaking of which, I'm a huge fan of your book, uh, The Right and Wrong Stuff, How Brilliant Careers Are Made and Unmade. I listen to it at least a few times a year just to make sure I'm keeping myself accountable and on track. Um, what inspired you to write it? Yeah, a couple different things inspired me. The first one was I had a phone call with someone that I knew who, an old boss, and I hadn't caught up with them for a long time. And we, we, you know, we, we, we caught up personally. And then when I asked him about his, his career, I could hear this disappointment in his voice when he was talking about it. He basically, he had not achieved the level of success that he thought he would have and that I thought he would have. And so I hung up the phone and I wrote on a sticky note, what impedes the progress of talented people? And I stuck it on my wall. And I would look at it, you know, for the next couple of weeks. And I just thought, you know what? I'm going to dig into this. So I went to the dean of our school and I asked her, could I take a quarter off from teaching and do research around what derails talented people in their careers? And she said, oh, that's interesting. You, you always read about managerial success, but you never read about, you know, like failure. Sure. But you owe me a white paper. If you do it, you have to write a white paper. I said, oh, that's fair. So I, I did this research and I found a ton of information. There is a whole lot of information around why people fail, but the, the firms that create a lot of the research, there aren't a lot of buyers for the research. Companies, it's an uncomfortable topic and a lot of companies don't look at why people run into career trouble, but there is a lot of information on it. So. I did primary interviews, I did a lot of secondary research, and I wrote this white paper, and it ended up being like a 40-page white paper, and I still had a lot to, to say, so I turned it into a, I turned it into a book. And That's amazing. It was, uh, yeah, it was a real 
a really interesting, I found five big reasons that people run into trouble. And I created these sort of characterizations or these archetypes to try to make it sound less severe. So when people talk about it, instead of saying, you know, I suffer from interpersonal issues, they could say, oh, I have a little bit of Captain Fantastic in me. So there are these five reasons. And one is Captain Fantastic, which is interpersonal issues, often led by either hubris or poor listening skills or overconfidence and not, um, you know, not being a good partner with other people. Um, the second reason is difficulty managing teams. So this is somebody who's really good and really talented, but they haven't learned to go from me to we or from player to coach. And so they have to learn how to train and develop people instead of trying to do things themselves. And the third, the third reason is somebody who gets stale. They stop being curious and innovating and they become sort of stuck. And they I call that person version 1.0. They have stopped being a learner and they end up kind of getting passed over. They don't get fired as much as they just don't get ahead because they stop being curious. They stop being lear a learner. And the fourth one is someone who is, they go very linearly directly up in their progression in their career, but they probably missed a couple lateral moves that would have broadened them. So they end up hitting a ceiling because they're good in one thing, but they aren't broad enough. So they finally hit a point where they can't, they can't progress because they don't have enough knowledge of how the whole system works together at a company. And I call that person the one trick pony. And then the final one is somebody who is just takes on too much and balls drop. And so they don't prioritize and manage their time effectively. And I call that person the whirling dervish. And so all these five, these five archetypes were driven by the research findings. But, you know, it's amazing when I talk to people or if you read the book, you see yourself in these different positions. You know, I saw myself in, in several of them as I was writing the material. Oh, yeah. I definitely, as you said, some of those, I'm like, ah, oh, I, I try to be conscious of it, but it's difficult. The reason I wanted you to talk about your book is that I think about, you know, product and packaging innovation, it's from people. People are yes. making these things. And so how can, you know, leaders create an environment that fosters innovation? Really? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, there's a couple things I would say. One of them is innovative companies start by uniting people around a shared purpose. So, the, you know, this is the Simon Sinek. You have to have the why before the what. So there is a shared purpose and you're on a mission together. Whatever the mission is to feed the poor, to, to, to lower the carbon footprint through automotive transportation, to help people eat better, to help people enjoy their food, more, whatever it is, there is a shared purpose and mission that aligns people so that they feel like they're on a vision quest. Next, um, there has to be a shared set of tenets or, or principles that uh, in which in, in how people are operating together, like a social contract on how we're going to get things done. You agree on a protocol. You agree on a way of operating. So there's a common set of tenets or values on how you're going to treat how we treat each other, how we communicate, that kind of thing. A third one is 
an agreement, and I know this is you, Laura, and the way you act, candid discourse. You will be honest with each other. You, if, you know, if there's conflict, you'll work through it, but you will be candid and you will trust each other enough to say what you mean. Even if it's going to ruffle feathers, you're going to have a one of your shared values is you're going to be candid and have candid discourse so that, um, you know, there's no sacred cows. You're going to uh, you're going to agree to be open. And that's very important. Then another very important principle for innovative companies is you have a disciplined approach to testing products or ideas quickly. So you develop prototypes, you develop a hypothesis. You develop prototypes against your working hypothesis. You test the ideas quickly in test markets, and then you iterate on them. So this is the lean startup methodology that, you know, you read so much about. Eric Reese wrote the book, Lean Startup. St um, Steve Blank is a big proponent of the lean startup. Um, you use the business model canvas to uh, try things out and and develop your hypotheses on this canvas. The business model canvas consists of nine areas. Uh, they are different areas you're going to test. So it could be around which, which customer segments are we appealing to. It could be around what value proposition we're building. It could be around what channels we're utilizing. So you have a disciplined approach to testing and learning and you do it quickly and iteratively. And that. then lastly, going back to team again, you even amidst all this chaos and quick movement, you have an integrative approach to decision-making, drawing on different groups' expertise. So you're going to have a cross-functional group working on innovation. There's going to be people, be people there from procurement, people from marketing, people from sales, people from finance people from um, customer success, and together you have an integrative way to make decisions that draws from the knowledge of each group. So it is a truly team effort, and there's, a, there's sort of a squad that's working on this together. But those are some of the principles of innovation over time that I think make for successful uh, efforts. I love that. Um... It's funny because I think the the further along I get in my career, the more I understand the importance of difficult conversations. Mm. I think they're easier, though, if you have a shared purpose. Back to your first point. If you have a shared purpose and you have defined operating values as a team, it then the the candidness, it's, it's because you're aligned to that mission. It's no longer personal. You're all trying to get to that same place. And when I look at product innovation and failures, sometimes it, it becomes because of a lack of teamwork or a lack of um, cohesion. And, and, and that's unfortunate, right? Because we're all trying to move fast and break things and ultimately, hopefully achieve the, you know, success in whatever it is that we're doing. I think you hit the nail on the head, Laura. It, it, it begins with a common purpose. And going back to your company, Specride has done a wonderful job of thinking very deliberately about what are we here to do? What is our common purpose? What are we trying to accomplish? And then if you when you have arguments, if you can point back to the purpose, it'll unite you or or it'll allow you to get past the ruffled feathers because you're all there trying to accomplish the same thing that you've all bought into. So I think you're absolutely right. That's what it starts with. It's funny. One quick side note, and then we'll move on. 
Matthew came to me very early on, the founder and CEO, and said, I figured out what our mission is. We're going to eliminate all the waste in the world. And I thought, well, that's a really big goal, right? I mean, we were, you know, a small company at the time. And then I said, all right. I said, I like it. I said, think about it for a day. Just think about it. And uh, he came back the next day and he was like, you're right. Like, that's something we, he's like, we can't do that alone. He said, our mission is to help people and companies do that. Our mission is to help people and companies make amazing, sustainable things. And we were like, that's it. Like, that's the mission. It's not about us. It's about the we and not just we as a company, but we with our customers, with our partners aligned on this mission. If we can all make our products and packaging just a little bit better, if we can enable that, we're going to have a much bigger impact than if we try to single handedly eliminate all the waste in the world. I love the the audacity of the goal of the mission. It, you know, you have to be great mission statements, I believe, are inspirational. They're memorable and they're believable. So they're succinct. They're memorable. They're inspirational. And you and you believe in the you believe in the effort is worth, you know, the effort's worth it. So you look at these great mission statements like, you know, um, uh to make people happy was Walt Disney's original mission to make people happy. You know, it's a good mission. Yeah. Sometimes um, the symbol is the best. Save people um, money so they can live better at Walmart. You know, a very good mission. So I want to talk about your time at Walmart because Walmart's one of the leading online retailers. You were really part of that effort of launching Walmart.com, which at the time was um, very new. Can you provide us some lessons learned on really create? To me, that's, innovation in the form of a new business model. So can you talk yes. a little bit about your experience there? You know, was it, I, I have, I don't know, maybe from anybody I worked with, any company I worked for, my, my time at Walmart was my most treasured because I felt, um, I felt like I belonged there. There, uh, the, 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 the environment, there's humility. Um, it's about the team. Um, the attention to detail is important. Responding quickly to customers is important. Understanding your business in and out is important. And it's a collective over the, you know, the collective is the important thing versus the superstar individual. So I loved the environment at Walmart and it, it spoke to me. The thing that made that job hard, Laura, was it's the classic innovator's dilemma. You build a business model that is working really well. And the return on invested capital for super centers was very high. And so to, in, to, to innovate in this manner, you are going to, for a period of time, you are going to break that model and potentially cannibalize, you know, cannibalize the Holy Grail and trying to get people's head wrapped around the fact that we were not how do you view yourself? Are you, a, are you a physical store retailer or are you a distribution company? And at the time I was at walmart.com, Walmart saw themselves as a physical store retail company. And I was touting, no, we're a distribution company, which means we want to give customers what they want through any means that they want us to, whether we're going to go directly to their home, whether they're going to pick it up in the store. However they want to receive it, we're going to get it to them. And that wasn't the mindset of the company because Supercenters had been so successful. 
So it's the innovator's dilemma. How do you bring innovation in when something is working so well and has gotten so efficient and so successful that any other model initially is not going to be as successful because you have this thing working at super centers, working at scale. So it was very challenging, very challenging in those early years to try to get the resources to put against the internet because the super center strategy was still working so well. So how did you kind of get to that inflection point then? Because obviously today, I think most people would say it's a success. I would argue, I mean, we got to, we got into the billions of dollars when I was there. I would argue though, ultimately, it was four or five years after I left that Walmart sort of woke up and smelled the coffee. And I think the reason they did was Amazon started getting into consumables and that scared the heck out of them. So it took Amazon to get into their core business versus going into peripheral businesses. It took that to happen for them to really get scared about it. And I was long gone by then. I I felt like uh, when I left, I felt like as much as I loved this company, really loved the management team and felt like I belonged there. I felt like the internet was not going to be a priority. I couldn't see it or even around the corner. And, you know, I left in 2007 and I think I think they started taking the internet threat seriously about 2011 or 12. So it took you know, some time. It's interesting. Nothing drives innovation like competition. And that's right. I would argue that that's my least favorite way to be innovative. Um, there's a great quote by Gary Vaynerchuk, who's a very popular entrepreneur and marketer. And he says, if you turn, if you keep turning around, your, your neck hurts. It's something that, to that degree. And I'm, I'm always like, man, if you're innovating just by doing what other people are doing, I feel like you never really get authentic enough to drive differentiation. I mean, obviously, Walmart's super successful, so it worked for, I mean, it works for many companies. But personally, that's not like where I find my inspiration. I don't want to be like scared to do it by someone else. I want to be finding that myself. It was just, you know, I would sit there with the CFO and I would make a case for why we should investment spend in the Internet. And he'd say, well, show me the return on, you know, show me the return on the investment. And I'd say, I can't, I'm not going to show you a return that looks like a super center. And he'd say, well, then, you know, that additional dollar I have should go towards what has the high. So that that makes sense if your if your time frame was 18 months or three years, if you're playing for five or 10 years out, then you might make a different decision, to invest in the Internet. But let's face it, business managers, business executives are driven by the stock price of their company. And announcing that you're going to put a big investment in the internet in 2002 was not going to drive that stock price up. So it is a misalignment of incentives that if you are a founder like Jeff Bezos or Reed Hastings, you're going to make those longer term investments because this is your baby and you want it to last long, long time from now. So I was talking to Reed Hastings. No, no, no. Yeah, I was talking to Reed. And he said, God, I almost waited too long to go digital. We were still, you know, they were shipping physical DVDs. And he said, I almost waited too long to go digital. I knew it was going to cannibalize my business, but I knew that it had to happen. So he made the you know, courageous effort to switch to a digital platform. And of course, it worked. But he said, I even almost waited too long to do it. 
I heard that Bezos, when he was asked, why did you create the Kindle when it's not profitable and you're cannibalizing your core business? He said, I'd rather chew my own arm off than have someone chew my arm off for me. Wow. Yeah. So I, yeah. That's the, that, was the, that was the challenge of Walmart in those days. Oh, I love, I mean, I love hearing these stories because I love having in the back of my mind, those uncomfortable feelings of like, if something feels uncomfortable, that's probably the right thing to do when it comes to innovation. Like you should be a little scared of it, right? Um, that's how you know you're on track. I know that our time together is coming to a close. So I want to do a few rapid fire questions that we ask every okay. Um The first is what's your favorite product right now? There's a product called Muse, M-U-S-E. It is a brain sensing um, headband that tracks your EEG. Um, and so as you meditate, you can um, understand if you are actually becoming calmer or not. And so it's a device I wear when I meditate. And I've tracked it over five years. And as I've meditated, I've gotten my EEG signals have gone more and more calm with time. I think it's a wonderful feedback mechanism that shows that you're, you know, it shows that you I actually, my brain waves are more relaxed and calm due to being a meditator. So that's my, that's my favorite, favorite consumer product right now. I feel like you're very Zen. I feel like that comes through. Um, what, what product or packaging trends are you most excited about right now? Oh my. Well, I mean, all the sustainable things that we've, we've invested in a company repurpose, we've been, you know, any, the sustainability products and circular economy is so exciting to me because I worry like everybody about, uh, waste and packaging. Um, I am very interested right now on gut biome. So I think we're going to see, uh, so much, so much about our guts, we're going to learn in terms of what each person should eat based on their own particular gut biome. And I think that if, if I bet if we fast forward five or 10 or 15 years, there's going to be so much more individualized eating based on the knowledge of what our individual gut biome looks like. Oh, I love that. And I love, and I love this because from somebody who has kind of GI issues always have, um, I can't wait for the day where there there's going to be a, a much better formula about what I should eat and why. You know what's interesting? There's a company called Pros that does that for hair care. Like they create custom formulas because everyone's hair is different. I'm imagining a world where food companies have maybe three variations of a product. I mean, there to me that's that's so interesting and exciting. Last question. Um, this is a little game we play called Keep. Kill, keep, or change. So we're going to pull a list of random products. What would you like to kill or AKA discontinue? Keep or change. And so I'm going to pull three things. The first is orange starburst. Oh, keep. Orange is the most underrated flavor. Give me a break. Orange, orange, everything. Orange Fanta. Yay. You you haven't even heard the the other two though. Orange starburst, mason jars, or frozen yogurt. All right, so you got to keep one, kill one, change one. Um, keep mason jars again. Sustainability, storage, wonderful. Uh, orange, uh, change it maybe to take out some of the uh, sugars or, or or make it more natural flavored, and kill the froyo. 
You would kill the Froyo? Kill the Froyo. If you're going to go big, go big. Go ahead and wow. have the full fat ice cream. That's a controversial. I want people to go off in the comments about that. Are you team Froyo or team? I just had Pinkberry the other day. It was delicious. Um, well, uh, I'm like, well, I'm, if I'm going to eat that, I'm going to go full fat and I'm going to have the most delicious <laughs> cookies and cream ice cream ever. Well, Carter, thank you so much for joining us today. How can people follow you, read your book, et cetera? Um, you know, I'm, I'm on I'm on the typical social media, but I'm not that active. So uh, the, the books, you know, the books, the right and wrong stuff. It's available. Don't expect me to do a lot of tweeting. I do follow people, though, because I like to learn, but I don't tweet a lot myself. So CarterCast and, um, you know, I think it's CACast at Twitter, but I won't be saying clever things over, twi over Twitter. Well, Carter also uh, reads his own audiobook, and I can say it's a delightful listen. I, I listened to the audiobook as I was walking. So you can find that on Audible. You can find his book on Amazon and, and other platforms. And for those listening, if you liked this episode, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Carter, thanks again. Thank you, Laura. Take care. Bye. Bye. Beyond the Shelf is presented by Specrite the first cloud-based platform for specification management. Say goodbye to spreadsheets, share drives, and legacy systems, and digitize your specs in a secure single source of truth. With Specrite, you can easily share and collaborate on specs with other departments and across your entire supply chain network. Taking a spec-first approach enables you to accelerate product and packaging development, go to bid faster, report on sustainability, and ultimately spend less time chasing data and more time making amazing things. To learn more, visit specright.com. That's S-P-E-C-R-I-G-H-T.com.